Good morning, everyone. Our scripture today is from Jesus and his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. So let's try to hear with open ears and hearts willing to be changed by what we hear. Jesus said to his disciples, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Hey, we all know the world is a confusing place. I mean, just look at the news headlines for this past week. Shootings and protests and riots and all the rest. You know right away that the world is not as it should be. We instinctively know that there's something wrong, something's broken, something is off-center. We feel it. We, we just sense it. But we also have a vague idea of what the world should be, how it could be, how it should be better. But how to get from here to there, that's the real mystery, isn't it? How to get from the world as it is to the world as it should be, that's the mystery. Last week we finished off our summer message series on the Beatitudes, these eight short statements that Jesus said describe the kind of person who understands the world as it is and the world as it should be and who is working to bring Christ's kingdom. The Beatitudes person is the one who is really pursuing God and his kingdom, who's pursuing God's rulership over their own life and over this world, pursuing God and his kingdom authentically, sincerely, and fully. Now, seven of the Beatitudes are personality or behavioral traits that mark a person as a Christ follower and a kingdom seeker. Seven ways the followers of Jesus are to live that's probably different than the rest of the world. But that last beatitude, the eighth one, it's different. It's a disturbing conclusion to the list because Jesus says that, you know, people who really take his word seriously, if you really live by these first seven beatitudes, then you can expect to collide with the values and beliefs of this broken world. Collide in such a way that it might actually lead to persecution or violence or even death. Jesus reiterates this warning to his followers many places in the Gospels, but like John 15, 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So persecution and martyrdom, that's what Jesus says is the potential outcome for anyone who sincerely follows him. Persecution and martyrdom, I mean, that just doesn't sound right. I mean, it's not the health and wealth gospel that's so popular throughout many streams of American Christianity today. That's not the positive kind of upbeat motivational message, you know, the focus groups would say preachers need to give in order to market your church to a wider audience. It's not the kind of upbeat message that's going to help you attract new people and help grow your church and, you know, be successful. But Jesus talks a lot about persecution and martyrdom in the Gospels. And that's why, honestly, so many American Christians, they don't really take Jesus at his word. So many American Christians, they don't really take Jesus seriously. Mentally, just kind of skip over those verses, stick to the easier ones. We find ways to kind of explain away the hard teachings of Jesus to make the Gospel easier to swallow. Because honestly, I think what most American Christians really want out of their faith is a life that, 
just kind of mirrors the rest of the world, but with a Jesus blessing on top, like sort of sprinkles on your ice cream cone. A life that looks pretty much exactly what a prosperous, successful American life might look like, but just kind of capped off with a Jesus smiley face sticker. And I include myself in there. We want price prosperity. We want our own peace of mind. We want a sense of security. We want to feel like a success. We want to be seen as the good guys by the rest of the culture. But that's not what Jesus says marks his true followers, ever, in all the Gospels. He never promises worldly prosperity or security. In fact, what he promises is a life marked by beatitude. And as we follow the story of the growth of the early church throughout the rest of the New Testament and throughout the pages of church history, we find that the church was born into an atmosphere of persecution. Sometimes just minor harassment and sometimes full-blown death by torture and cruel violence in the Colosseum of Rome. The church was first planted in the soil of persecution. That's how the church grew. In that harsh, dangerous, inhospitable environment, that's how the church flourished. The exact opposite of what you would expect. Persecution only made the church stronger and its witness more vibrant. And the message of Jesus then spread like wildfire. And as I pointed out last week, persecution at various levels is still going on in so many places around the world today. I mean, try publicly converting to Christ and calling Jesus your savior in countries like India or Pakistan or Saudi Arabia and many other places where conversion is illegal and sometimes punishable by death. There are plenty of places in the world where it is dangerous to be a Christian. And yet that's often where the gospel is growing. I remember in high school when my youth group leader challenged us with this. He said, imagine that you did live in a country where it was against the law to be a Christian and you were arrested and put on trial for being a Christian. Would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would there be any evidence to prove that somehow you were a Christian, you were different than all the rest of the people? What kind of evidence would that be? I mean, ask yourself that question. What evidence is there that you're actually a Christian? You own a Bible? I mean, is that it? You attend worship services sometimes? You give a little money to the church? You say a prayer now and then, especially when you're sad or you're in trouble? Is, is that all it means to, to be a Christian? Is that really the kind of evidence that would get you convicted? If the judge and the jury took a look at your life, would they find enough proof to convict you of being a real follower of Jesus or would the verdict come back not guilty for lack of evidence? Jesus would say, it's when we live out the Beatitudes that we demonstrate evidence of being a true believer, of being his disciple. The Beatitudes are not just some quick checklist of good deeds or noble traits. They are the sign that our hearts and our heads and our hands are actually aligned with Jesus in his way of impacting the world and reflecting God's love. That's the evidence Jesus is looking for. If he were the one who were to judge who is and who is not one of his true followers, the evidence he would look for would come from the Beatitudes. The people who know him, who are truly following him, they are the ones who are going to exhibit the qualities he describes in the Beatitudes, and then they will impact the world in a special way. That leads us to the two metaphors Jesus used in today's passage from Matthew chapter 13, salt and light. 
It's unfortunate that in most Bibles there's a break between verses 12 and 13, between the end of the list of the Beatitudes and then Jesus' words about salt and light. In our quest to make the Bible readable, translators have added chapter headings and verse numbers, paragraph breaks throughout the Bible that were not in the original manuscript. It just makes the Bible easier to study to say chapter 5, verse 12, than to say the 14th line down the left side of the papyrus, you know. But too often, the paragraph or section marks, they break up the flow of thought. The breaks kind of chops up the passage, uh, actually where it was intended to kind of continue to flow. At a paragraph break, we, we mentally separate one thing from another, from what came before it. And that's not good because connecting the whole passage is how we best understand the, the context of what we're reading. A few years ago, some of you will recall, we spent an entire fall using a version of the New Testament that removed all the verse numbers and chapter headings so that the New Testament read more like a nonfiction book. And many people found that it was refreshing to read the Gospels and the New Testament letters without all the added headings. It was much easier to read and kind of get the overall flow or impact of, of Scripture that way. I think we still need the chapters and verses and verse numbers and stuff to help with Bible study, but let's be careful not to cut off the flow of thought. Because here in his words about salt and light, Jesus isn't starting something new. He is still blessing. He is still describing his people, his, his community. These verses are a continuation of Jesus' thought. He's still painting this verbal picture of his followers. And the images of salt and light immediately flow after the Beatitudes. And Jesus is linking them to the way his followers are now supposed to interact with the larger, wider world. Jesus has a job for them to do. A role they are to play as his representatives to the wider world. His Beatitude people are going to go out and mingle and spread out into this wider world as salt and light. Today I'm going to focus in on just what it means to be salt. Next week we'll wrap it up with this second image of light. But today just salt. So how would Jesus' original listeners, how would they have understood what Jesus meant when he said they are the salt of the earth? How would they have heard it? How would, what would it have meant to them back then? Well, it would have been a shock, actually, and here's why. I mean, first we have to understand the difference between the role salt played in the life of the ordinary person in Jesus' day and kind of the, the role salt plays in our lives today. For us, I mean, the only time we think, think about salt is when we're going to flavor our food by sprinkling, you know, salt on our French fries or some other cardiac, cardiac event-inducing, you know, meal. A, a chef uses salt to, to season a recipe. That's our number one use for salt. We might use a form of salt to unfreeze a wintry driveway or an icy road, or if you're working out or exercising out in the hot sun, or if you're a marathon runner, and you're really perspiring, losing a lot of fluid, you might take a salt tablet to replenish your sodium levels. But none of those uses would have popped up first into the minds of Jesus's, uh, the people listening to Jesus. Their main usage for salt was as a preservative. A preservative. There were no ice machines or refrigerators in those days. So to preserve meat, it was often dipped in a saline solution, a brine, or salt was rubbed into the rare meat to make it cure. That was the number one usage of salt in the ancient world as a preservative, and it was so valuable. Salted meat was the only way to save freshly butchered meat from going rotten in the heat. 
So salt was precious for that reason, along with many other uses in the ancient world. I mean, whole books have been written on the topic of salt and the way it was used in the ancient world, just because Jesus uses the word in this passage. So they have, you know, you can explore all the nuances of what Jesus might have meant with all the different, but to me that's over-functioning, you know. Most of the time in scripture, the simplest answer is the correct one. The people listening to Jesus would have heard it as a preservative. And they also would have recognized salt's double meaning. It was commonly stood, understood in their day that it was the people of Israel who were to be God's salt in the world. That's what every Jewish boy and girl was taught growing up, that Israel played this special role in the world in God's plan for salvation. Going all the way back to Abraham, God promised that Abraham's descendants would, would be this blessing to the rest of the world, Genesis 12:3. God says, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is promising that he's going to create this people called Israel. They're going to be a blessing to the other nations of the world. They were God's chosen people, chosen to be a blessing to all the nations of the world, to all peoples. And so the ancient nation of Israel was to be God's salt and his light, to be used by God to preserve and inform the world of God's coming salvation through the Messiah, the anointed one, who would be born in the crucible of the nation of Israel. That's how they were going to be a blessing. But the problem was Israel never really accepted that role. Instead of actively pursuing a posture of, of open arms, of welcome, of being a positive influence on the other nations, Israel, for a lot of reasons, became more exclusive, became a restrictive club that kind of kept others out. It was a privileged group, kind of clannish and selfish and even snobbish, where they reveled in their own relationship with God, claimed a type of religious superiority over the Gentiles, those outside of Israel, but they treated outsiders as unclean, as unwanted by God, which just wasn't true. They did not accept the, the job God had given them to be salt to the ancient world. And so the people listening to Jesus would have been a bit confused because they were not the movers and shakers of Israel. In fact, they were the exact opposite. They, they seemingly had no influence. But what Jesus was saying to them is that this new beatitude people, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn for their sins, those who hunger for righteousness, those who are meek, those who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, those people will act like salt to the wider world. His beatitude people would carry out the mission that Israel had rejected. Israel had dropped the ball on being salt to the earth. So Jesus' beatitude people, they would now pick up the ball and run with it. They became what the Old Testament scripture calls God's faithful remnant. Jesus was anointing this beatitude people with the role of being God's faithful remnant with the larger circle of unfaithful Israel and then to the world beyond. And that's what makes these words by Jesus so shocking. From the world's point of view, these people were losers and outcasts, but not to Jesus. You who are hunger, who hunger after me, are the new remnant, you can kind of hear Jesus saying. He is bestowing on them a holy vocation, a, a charter to his disciples to live out this new calling. Jesus took Israel language and now is applying it to his followers, those who are not traditionally thought to have any power, the poor and the meek and the rest. Now, they were all aware of the cultural body of tradition that Jesus was really upending here. They all knew the story, the significance of what Jesus was saying. His followers 
were going to be a prophetic contrast to the rest of Israel, and they would be preservers of the world. Now, during Jesus' day, there was a ferocious debate going on in Israel about how to handle Rome and this occupying army. There were basically four different groups, each way with their own solution about the problem of how do we relate to this outside world, to these intruders that came from outside the Jewish bubble. The Sadducees, they were the collaborators. Let's go along to get along. Let's just keep our heads down. Let's do what they want. And eventually they'll get tired of eating Palestinian dust all day long and they'll go away. That was one view. We're just going to collaborate. The Pharisees said, no, let's be super spiritual. Let's follow the law to the letter. Let's be so precise that we're going to earn God's favor. And then he will end up sending his Messiah as the conquering king who's going to kick these Romans all the way back to the Italian boot. That was the second view, kind of super spiritual. The third view is uh, uh, the Essenes. They were the mystics, the frustrated idealists. They were the separatists who they just wanted to get away from it all. They wandered out into the desert. They built their own kind of utopian communities as far from the maddening crowd as they could possibly get. They just wanted to be left alone. That was third. Leave it all behind. And fourthly, the zealots. They were the revolutionaries, the rioters, the street thugs who used terrorism and violence against Rome. Hit and run, a Roman soldier found with a knife in his back. That, that was their solution. So you had collaborators, uh, religious zealots, you had utopian separatists, and then you had the violent revolutionaries. That's what Israel had become because salt and light was not in their vocabulary. Jesus' beatitude people were to be a prophetic contrast to the misguided ways of Israel and to approach the world in an entirely different way as salt, as a blessing, as a reflection of the kingdom of God. You can hear Jesus saying, you are to preserve and season the world with your humility, with the way you mourn over your sins, with your love for mercy and purity, with your hunger and thirst for righteousness, with your meekness, with your ability to bring peace and reconciliation to situations, with your love of my kingdom, with your willingness to endure suffering, this is how you will preserve and season the world. This is how you will glorify my Father. Well, let's leap forward to today. If we try to map out Jesus' disciples for today, we would have to say that Jesus is still counting on his beatitude people to be a prophetic contrast now to the church and then to the wider world. There's so much that happens in the church that just has nothing to do with Jesus in America makes me so sad to say it, but it's true. So much of what happens in the church today in America, it just does not reflect the kingdom attitudes that Jesus taught. Too often what we see is churchianity and not Christianity. We still live out the same scenarios in how we interact with the world. There are Christians who are going to accommodate like the Sadducees. Christians who compromise the Bible, compromise basic beliefs. They just want to fit in with the secular world. They just want to be liked. They want to be applauded by the secular right or the secular left. They just want to fit in. Or Christians who become super spiritual, the pie in the sky. Jesus is coming back soon, so we're off the hook, and let's just get lost in apocalyptic ramblings and conspiracy theories. I mean, that's a whole sermon of itself. Or Christians who just want to withdraw from the world and all its problems. We're so tired. We're so defeated. Let's just move to our own version of the desert commune in Arizona or North Carolina or someplace. Let's just go to our TV room and pull the curtains. Jesus said his people will be completely different. 
There's no political solution to the world's problems. But the question is, are we living out the Beatitudes in daily life? That's the question. Christian uh, theologian, British theologian John Stott put it this way. God intends for us to penetrate the world. Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in its elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars. Our place is to be rubbed into the secular community, as salt is rubbed into meat to stop it going bad. And when society does go bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world, but should we not rather reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where is the salt? Where is the salt? Are we living out in a, our lives in a way that we reflect the kingdom and not Christ, uh, churchianity? Are we being rubbed into the world? As Christians, have we saturated this world system in order to turn people away from the darkness of Satan to the kingdom of God's glorious light? Do we work like a preservative to, to counter the de decomposing life around us? Do we rub life into the souls of people around us, into the society that we live in, into our workplace where God has put us, into the family, into our neighborhoods? Are we salt within it? Do we have a savoring influence on those around us? Do we have that kind of positive flavor? Someone has said, if we're not affecting the world, the world is affecting us. Are we exporting or are we importing? Are there greater influences coming into the church than going out of the church? If we are not salting the world, do you know what that means? It means the world is rotting us. Friends, Jesus is looking for those who would join his beautiful beatitude people, not just for the blessings that they might experience, but so that they could be a blessing to this wider world. And boy, does our world need people like that right now. How about you? Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for the power of Jesus's words to turn our focus not just to ourselves, but to those outside. That his people exist to bring this savor, this flavor, this preserving gospel to the rest of the world, Lord. That that's what we're called to do. And so when we're tempted to compromise, when we're tempted to, to, to give in, and when we're tempted to just kind of withdraw, which I know is my struggle, just want to withdraw and hope it all goes away. But Lord, whenever we're tempted that way, help us to remember you're calling on us to be beatitude people. And in that way, impact the world your way your way. That's how you want to bring change, through people who live out your teachings and your kingdom through the Beatitudes. Help us to be salt this week, this week, Lord. It's in your name we pray.